Hey everyone, welcome to a special episode of The Vast Podcast. Last weekend, we had the absolute privilege of having the Jedi Master himself, Dr. David Campbell, do a night lecture and Q&A at our local church, C3 Los Angeles. And it was, as usual, absolutely brilliant. And so we wanted to make sure and share it with our Vast family. We're going to drop the lecture in this episode and release an accompanying episode with a Q&A as well. This lecture by David is called The Truth of the Bible in a Postmodern World and is an abbreviated version of a course he does on Theos University called Battle for the Bible. You can get that full course at Theos University, which is a platform we absolutely love here at VAST. Theosu creates digestible courses for Christians to know the Bible in context and experience spiritual transformation, all for the price of Netflix. Get unlimited access to seminary-level teaching in plain English. There are dozens of courses from literally some of the best Bible teachers out there. So go to theosu.ca and sign up for a subscription to listen to the full four-and-a-half-hour course and dozens and dozens of other seminary-level courses from incredible Bible teachers. Okay, let's jump into this lecture from Dr. David Campbell called The Truth of the Bible in a Postmodern World. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so this, uh, what I'm going to give tonight, I've kind of cut and pasted out of a much bigger, longer presentation that I put together and recorded for this online platform, Theos University, for those of you who know anything about it. Um, and so uh, if it doesn't seem to cohere, then it's because it doesn't cohere. <laughs> it's because there are bits, quite large bits that I have to leave out or else we'd be here for the whole thing is, I don't know, three or four hours, something like that. So. Uh, and, uh, but in any event, I'm going to, to take this bit and give a very manageable amount, maybe 40, 45 minutes or something, and then we'll go from there. So Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're with us tonight, and we need you. We can't possibly understand your word unless you give us the understanding. Uh, we need you to open our eyes to divine truth in the middle of a very fallen world where we get messed up all the time because we're seeing the fragmentation and distorted version of the truth as secular pagan culture around us presents it. And so we need your help, Lord, to be able to negotiate our way, both to understand the culture in which we live and to understand what you have to speak into it and then to be equipped to actually speak those words of truth into this culture around us. So help us, Lord, and help us and help me tonight to express clearly what I'm trying to say. Help us to understand it and um, give us tools, Lord. At the least, motivate us. Let's come out of here tonight motivated to press in further to these things that we're talking of. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay. Now I'm going to start uh, by listing uh, just a few short things about what the Bible teaches about its own inspiration and authority. And I could cite countless biblical passages. I'm just going to pick out four of them. 2 Timothy 3 and 16, and... I can uh, also and will cut and paste all this, turn it into a document that can e email it to um, Jake or the church administrator, and you can all have copies of that, as far as I'm concerned, that's fine. I was going to tell a story, but it's too early to tell a story. All right. Besides <laughs> which, my wife would shoot me. Okay. Uh, let's look at four biblical passages. Number one, uh, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in 
righteousness, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. Paul pictures scripture uh, as so closely related to God, it can be thought of as the product of God breathing. The word is theopneustos, God breathing. God is the ultimate author of scripture. It does not err because God cannot lie. It is therefore to be believed in all that it teaches. The scriptures, Romans 3 verse 2, are the oracles of God. And when people say, well, I don't believe that God can communicate perfectly, or I don't believe the scriptures are perfectly accurate, then my question is, do you not believe that God can communicate with the people that he's created? So all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. Number two, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So in speaking of uh, the prophets, which Peter's speaking of the prophets here, that was one of the main, three main divisions of the Jewish Old Testament. Jewish Old Testament was the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. That was the title of the Jewish Old Testament, and it was usually shortened uh, to the Torah, the law, which is how the New Testament refers to the Old Testament. So often when the New Testament, when Jesus or Paul, for instance, cites the law, it's actually not the first five books of the Bible that are cited, it's the Psalms or Proverbs or some other part, um, because the law is the title of the Old Testament as a whole, or would have been for the New Testament Christians. That's just thrown in as an extra. Okay, uh, so here he's speaking of the prophets, and therefore he's speaking of the Old Testament as a whole, and uh, because it's a unity, the law, the prophets, and the writings. So Peter is adding his testimony to Paul. Uh, and remarkably, um, Peter states not only the Spirit of God speaks through the prophets, but he goes on uh, a, a couple of chapters later to speak of the writings of Paul in the same way and as carrying the same authority as the Old Testament, uh, which is extraordinary. Okay, number three. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, those were two smallest parts of the Hebrew uh, alphabet, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus had the highest possible regard for the authority of Scripture. You can disagree with Jesus if you want, but I'd rather take Jesus' opinion than yours. <laughs> it was, for Jesus, it was God-given down to the smallest detail, the iota and the dot, the smallest little bits. And let me tell you, if you study Hebrew, uh, after a whole term of studying Hebrew, that we came out of... Uh, an exam, and one of my friends said to me, it all looked like hen scratching to me. <laughs> and, uh, but just in the middle of the, all of this, there's just these tiny little bits, the iota and the dot, but Jesus says not even them will pass away until all is accomplished. So it was God-given down to the smallest detail. And it's interesting that this remark Jesus makes in Matthew 5 is in the midst of a stinging critique of human religious tradition. That's the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? And, uh, but even in the context where he was ripping the Pharisees uh, stem to stern, Jesus makes it plain that he submits to the authority of the Scriptures. The problem with the Pharisees was they didn't understand, interpret, or submit to the Scriptures themselves. Why is it that Jesus submits to the authority of the Scriptures? It's because the scriptures express his Father's will. John 7, verse 16. My teaching is not mine, is not mine. It is his who sent me. So Jesus' doctrine of scripture as reliable and authoritative divine revelation is fundamental to his understanding of his own mission. 
It's not an add-on. It is part of his own mission. He came to fulfill a scripture that he believed expressed accurately the will of God. So Jesus' own mission and the authority of scripture is one and the same as far as Jesus is concerned. So if you can't believe Jesus when he talks about the Bible, then why would you believe Jesus as to anything else he said? That's your decision to make. But you can't say, well, I'll believe Jesus when he talked about love, but I'm not going to believe him when he talks about the Bible. I'll make my own judgment about the Bible, but I'll still follow Jesus on other matters. Well, you can't do that. That's not an option that Jesus gave us because once you throw out the scriptures, you don't really understand Jesus' mission at all. Okay, and the last uh, scripture that I'm going to, I'm going to stop saying okay, that's because I'm tired, I apologize. Okay. <laughs> <All right. clears throat> uh, the last scripture I'm going to quote is John 10 and 35. Again, it's a saying of Jesus. Scripture cannot be broken. So Je Jesus views the scriptures because they are his Father's word as completely and irrevocably binding and therefore completely and unconditionally authoritative. And that's why in his epic battle with the Prince of Darkness, he limits his replies to the words of Scripture. That's Jesus. I talked this morning about the 40 days where Jesus turned the number 40 from defeat into the number of victory. And Jesus, three times, he replies not with his own words to the devil, but he replies with the words of the law. In Matthew chapter 3, for instance, verses 4, 7, and 10. So when Jesus told the devil, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, he was referring to Moses' statement concerning the words of the law that God had given Moses on Mount Sinai, Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. So Jesus is saying we live by not we, when he said we live by every word that comes in the mouth of God, he wasn't talking about the latest hot prophecy that Pastor Jake has had. It's not what he was talking about. I'm not, I'm not diminishing the, the latest hot prophecy because I always stay on the good side of the senior pastor when I'm visiting a church. I don't want to get kicked out before I'm done. So, but Jesus was not talking about some charismatic prophecy. Uh, he was talking about the Old Testament. That's what we live on. And he says every word. So this is a fundamental battle. He sets out the battle lines here, doesn't he? Because the devil is trying to question the authority of Scripture in his battle with Jesus. So this is, this is one of the fundamental battles that we are going to face in the church. The devil is going to um, either twist Scripture. Uh, he he's either going to, you know... Um, yeah, twist scripture as, for instance, he did in the early centuries when they had to fight with all the heresies they had to fight with, or he's going to try to obliterate scripture and take it away from the hands of people like he did in the medieval period, um, or, uh, you know, he's going to uh, uh, tell us that, that the scripture is no longer applicable, and that's the battle that we're fighting in postmodern, in modernism and postmodernism. So the battle, in any event, it, whatever format the battle takes, it's always about the Bible and about truth. Uh, because if, we, if the devil can get us disconnected from the source of divine truth, we've lost everything. We've lost everything. There's nothing left. Uh, and I can tell you from... I was raised in, <coughs> in a liberal uh, church, and I fought my way through largely through liberal theological institutions. And um, I understand the history of liberal theology. that They call it woke today, but it, you know, there's absolutely nothing new in it. I'm telling you. It's nothing that I didn't study 50 years ago as coming from the Germany of the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, and so uh, uh, the... Uh, <coughs> The, the battle that we're facing, and, and the, when I, you know, look at where that has led, uh, if you, it, 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 it leads to death. Um, 
the devil has been trying to separate Christians from the truth of scripture by questioning it. It's not just since, you know, George Floyd got shot, which is a horrible thing uh, in, uh, I'm sorry, not in America, it was in Minneapolis, wasn't it? Um, forgive, forgive me, but uh, uh, I mean, that was a horrible thing and it gave rise to all sorts of cultural battles that had nothing to do with racial prejudice. It was just all sorts of other things got added into it. And one of the things in the church that got added into it, bizarrely, was why do we believe the Bible anymore? Because it's apparently, you know, out of date, culturally oppressive, whatever you want to call it, document. And so um, I'm not making a statement on those other issues. I'm just saying the devil will try to separate us from the authority of Scripture. Now, the Bible, one of the clear commands of the Bible is to care for the poor. So if you use the Bible as, if you mistreat the Bible to use it as an instrument of oppressing poor people, God is not going to be happy with you. Now, you can call me left-wing for saying that. I'm not. I'm just being faithful to the Bible. But at the same time, uh, we, we can't, allow uh, the Bible to be pictured as being uh, some kind of oppressive instrument of the wealthy people or the white people or whatever because the Bible was not written by white people. Hello, somebody. <laughs> Jesus was not white. Uh, most of the leaders of the early church, you, you probably don't know this, most of the leaders of the early church were black for, the, for three or four hundred years. They were Africans. Augustine and Tertullian and Origen and all these, you know, you, you study church history, you find that out pretty quick. So, and even today, I, I'm sorry, I'm just adding all this in, but even, God blame it, my tiredness, but even today, how many Christians who believe the word of God are white? Very, a small percentage around the world. Uh, and if you want an example of Christians who hold to the utter total authority of Scripture, go to Nigeria, go to Africa. Uh, I don't know if there's any Nigerians here, but there might be because their Nigerians are everywhere. But I, I, whenever I meet them, I say, please don't form a Nigerian church. Come into our white churches because you carry two things as Nigerians in particular. You carry... Uh, a, a complete commitment to the authority of Scripture, number one, and number two, an understanding of the supernatural. So we need what Africa has to teach us today. All that was for free. So if you're, if you're offended, then the exits are well lit. <laughs> okay. you, you can't link Jesus to a political point of view. We're, we're in churches in different countries with all different points of view. My, and, and God forbid, my job as preacher is not to discuss politics. It's to preach the gospel. Uh, so anyway, uh, that's it. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. So Jesus taught the apostles that the Holy Spirit would bring his teachings to mind so that they could be accurately passed down. That's the Gospel of John. And the apostles, therefore, regarded the teaching of Scripture... As the, I'm sorry, the apostles regarded their own teaching as authoritative and binding. And we thank God constantly for this, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And the apostolic preaching was received in that way by the early church. It was, the apostolic preaching was conducted on one foundation, quote, according to the scriptures, unquote, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. When Paul said the apostles spoke as those entrusted with the gospel, 1 Thessalonians 2, he was referring to the truthfulness and accuracy of the facts of the gospel passed down by Jesus by the supernatural, passed down through Jesus by the supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit. Now, all of that is to say the Bible has no problem testifying to its own authority. Now, in the wider course, I go on and talk about the testimony of the church through uh, history. I then go and give a whole mini history of liberal theology and where it came from 
and I'm just saying that because I'm, I'm frantically scrolling through here to find the next point that I, and thank you, Lord, here I am. Okay, <laughs> then I come. <laughs> I, was, I was in faith. <laughs> uh, so the next part that I wanted, so all those parts are missing, and if you pay a few dollars, you can go on to Theos University um, and uh, look at the whole course. Okay. The next bit I want to talk about here is what I call the foundation of biblical authority. Now, as faithful Christians in a postmodern world, now you'll have to forgive me because I'm reading off of a, a, a text and um, you just have to forgive me. It's not an ad lib type of message. So I, I'm not trying to be, you know, rude, but I'm really more interested in what I've written here than in you. So I'll just say that, okay. <laughs> Even on a good day, I'm not the kind of preacher that prances around and talks to the person in the front row, you know, waves my hanky a little bit and so on. And if I was about 40 years younger, I might have a tenth of the energy that your pastor does, but okay. As faithful Christians in a postmodern world, how are we to defend the Bible's authority? The first step is to, oops, okay, I've made a reference here to something that is in the missing part. I thought that's not going to go down well. Okay, hang on a minute. <laughs> we cannot know the truth about God and how he relates to this world through our fallen human reason, but God is capable of communicating truth about himself to us who bear his image. This truth must be received by faith. Uh, when we receive Christ, God reveals truth to us in the scriptures through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Now, the New Testament presents itself as a series of eyewitness accounts to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. It demands that we take it seriously, and it holds out consequences if we don't. We can, we can know the truth, and that truth will set us free. So, I want to talk about the Bible as covenant. The Bible is the self-revelation of God, and God has given this revelation to us in a carefully defined form which emphasizes its authority, and this form is called a covenant. While we can understand the essential nature of this covenant from the Bible itself, further light is thrown on it if we appreciate some of its historical background. Uh, God chose to reveal himself in his word to a particular people at a particular time and place in history, and he did so for a reason. God fashioned his word using the format of a treaty or covenant which all the peoples of the ancient Near Eastern world, not just Israel, would have understood instantly and easily. So how did God use the ancient concept of treaty or covenant to deal with the Israelites? That's the question. Now, archaeological records and liberal theology taught uh, in the, in the uh, 1800s that the whole of the Old Testament was a myth, and they put, put out the idea that all these, you know, a long list of places and peoples and things never existed. But archaeology, modern archaeology, which started about the year 1900, has consistently, for 120 years now, proven the veracity and authenticity of the biblical record. If you go to the British Museum in London, um, in the, book sh in the bookshop at the entrance, uh, you can find uh, a, a, a large book entitled How Archaeology Validates the Bible. And the whole book consists of uh, items that are in the British Museum. It's extraordinary. There's several hundred pages of it. And then you can go around the British Museum, which might take you several days, and you can examine the artifacts from various stages of history which validate the accuracy of the Old Testament. So archaeological records show us that in the Middle Eastern world of the second millennium BC, in other words, the time of Moses, 
Conquering kings used a clearly defined treaty format to impose their will on defeated peoples. And this would have been the way the people of Israel understood for any people to come into submission to any king. The treaty that God made with Moses and the children of Israel pretty well exactly follows this format. And so in the treaty, God takes the place of the conquering king. Now, obviously, the character of God, he is governing and conquering his people for their own good, not like the human conquering kings did. But uh, God takes the place of the conquering king, and Israel takes the place of the people that he, quote-unquote, conquers or asserts his rulership over. Um, So God, and of course, God entered into this treaty with his people for their benefit, not for his benefit. That's what makes it different. And his covenant commitment ultimately cost him his own beloved son. But the point is that God used a vehicle for his revelation which would have been easily and clearly understood by all of the people. The heart of the covenant is the Mosaic law, but it's not hard to see how other parts of the Old Testament are related to it. So the treaty is the law of Moses. But pre Mosaic history, if you want to call it that, which is Genesis, all it does is it sets the stage for the delivery of the covenant by defining who God is and who his people are. The post-Mosaic history, which is all the historical books, that's a record of obedience or disobedience historically to the covenant. The Psalms are the worship accompaniment to the covenant celebrations. The prophetic books are God's warnings regarding disobedience to the covenant in subsequent times. The wisdom books, like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, bring practical application of the covenant to various areas of life. The entirety of the Old Testament is built around that one covenant, and all of it sets the stage for it and comments on it. The heart is the treaty. Now, what is the treaty? The ancient treaty was a binding agreement between two parties with copies to both. So that's why Moses came down the mountain with two tablets, not just one. I I always thought growing up, you know, the first tablet, well, had the first five commandments, you know, but that's not what it was. Um, They were two copies of a legal agreement. And so the stipulation was that a copy had to be kept in the presence of the conquering king. That's one. And the second copy had to be kept in a sacred location. So that explains why both tablets of the covenant wound up in the ark. Because the ark was both the dwelling place, so to speak, of God, and also the sacred and secure location. So both copies went into the same place. Now, the ancient treaties came always in a written form. Of course, liberal theology said there's no such thing as writing before whatever date. Then we discovered they were wrong. And uh, so the Old Testament comes in written form. It cannot, it cannot be abrogated. That's a legal word for, you know, you can't mess around with a contract once you've signed it. I went, went to, um, we, we were uh, partying at, at lunch on the beach so long that Jake wore me out. I went back to the hotel room and I did, made a mistake, which was falling asleep. I, there's a point to this story. I woke, up, <laughs> I woke up about 45 minutes later in an absolute haze, half haze and half panic that he was sitting waiting for me, and in the middle of which my youngest son uh, sent me this. Dad, can you, as always, you know, I don't care how old they are. Anyway, <laughs> Dad, can you please fill out this legal agreement? which is a, a cosign, you know, I've got a cosign for an apartment. And I'm looking at this thing, I'm staggering around, you know, what is this anyway, you know? And then, of course, of course, with my high-tech ability, I'm thinking, oh, how am I going to do this anyway? So I said, well, why don't you fill it in yourself, and uh, I'll do the best I can. But the point is that once you see a legal agreement, once you have a legal agreement, you can't fiddle around with it, can you? It's not up to me to say, well, I don't like this, this particular cosine form. I'm going to change that bit because the landlord, he's not going to accept it if I change that bit. Or I'm not going to fill that bit out. I don't feel like filling. I, why should he know how much money I earn? You know? 
But no, you can't do that because it will be rejected. So it's the same idea. The covenant is a legal document. That, that's, that's really what I'm trying to say. And so, uh, and so it cannot be altered, even down to, as Jesus said, the last iota or dot. King James said jot or tittle. That's the same idea. The last little comma can't be changed. And these treaties always had two things attached to the end. Number one, they had promises for the conquered people if they obeyed. Number two, they had curses attached if they disobeyed. That's the format. And that is the exact form, I'm just giving a summary, that's the exact form the Mosaic Treaty takes, as well as its elaboration in the rest of the Old Testament. And that's the foundation of its authority. God gave it, God gave it as a treaty which he had written and imposed. Once it was given, it constituted a permanent, unchangeable, legal document governing the relationship of the king and the people. Do you understand the significance of what I'm saying? The Mosaic Covenant, and by extension, the entire Old Testament, which I've briefly tried to indicate how it's united around the covenant. So the Mosaic Covenant and the entire Old Testament was a permanent legal document detailing the requirements God placed upon his people. This is how I'm going to relate to you. You can disobey and pay a price, but you can't change it. And just like the other ancient treaties, curses were attached to anyone who would alter the covenant document in any way. Read Deuteronomy 4 verse 2 if you don't believe me. And so God himself fashioned the Old Testament as a permanently binding, authoritative expression of his will down to the last detail even though he utilized humanly understandable forms to express it. And so those ancient treaties show us exactly how the people of Israel would have easily comprehended the significance of the covenant document as they received it. It explains why they held the scriptures in such high reverence. It explains why the whole Old Testament was so meticulously passed down for well over a millennium in a society without printing presses. In 1948, uh, at Qumran in the Judean desert, uh, Bedouin discovered a, a whole pile of scrolls in a number of caves. And in one of those caves, um, they found a copy of the entire book of Isaiah. Now, the previous existing manuscript that we had, the previous existing oldest manuscript that we had in Hebrew of the book of Isaiah was somewhere around 800 AD. This copy was a couple hundred years before Christ. There was a thousand years difference. There was no difference, no difference in the document. And in the bigger course, I talk about the texts, the textual documents that we have today of the Old and New Testament and how much that adds reliability, but I don't have time to do that tonight. The point is that an ancient Near Eastern treaty required a binding written record of its terms and conditions, and that is what the Bible is. You cannot have faith in the God of the Bible without possessing and obeying his written record of covenant. And whenever you go away from the written record of covenant, your church or denomination will die within a generation or two. Now, that, this, as I've described it, is the foundation for our understanding of the authority of Scripture. The Bible is authoritative not because some church ever said it was. It's authoritative because God has inspired it and God has created it, and it holds validity independent of any human agency or power. And if, in case you're wondering, this concept also explains the authority of the New Covenant. Because the New Testament 
is fundamentally a renewal of the old covenant treaty. It's given by the same God. Its conditions are prophesied in the original covenant all the way from Genesis to Malachi, all the way from the seed of the woman will bruise, you know, the head of the serpent to Malachi where he talks about the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. The conditions of the covenant are prophesied all the way from Genesis to Malachi. It's not a new covenant at all. It's a renewal of the old covenant. Moses uh, and Abraham and David and the prophets spoke of the coming of the Messiah. The Old Testament in its entirety is a prophetic foreshadowing of the New Testament. The New Testament renews the Mosaic Covenant, but it alters its conditions so that forgiveness comes by the blood of Christ rather than by temple sacrifices. And it alters the nature of the covenant community, widening it from Jews to people of all nations. But the structure of the New Testament is amazingly similar to the Old Testament. At its heart is the, the renewal of the covenant in Christ. And it, it has its history, which sets the stage for that in the Gospels. It has the historical record of the subsequent obedience and disobedience in Acts and the Epistles. It has prophetic insight and teaching in the letters. It has wisdom in the letters, like in, just like in the Old Testament. And it has praise in the book of Revelation. Believe it or not, chapters 4, 5, and 7, and 14. If you don't believe me, you can go read it yourself. So the new covenant, being a renewal of the old, has the same characteristics. It comes from God, it's inviolable, it can't be altered, and in words deliberately borrowed from Deuteronomy, it has curses attached to that end, which I'll get to, I think, by faith in a moment. Okay, now let me just make one comment here about covenant and church. <clears throat> covenant creates community. Covenant creates the house of God. Now, on a human level, this church exists because some people planted it. I planted a couple churches. But actually, church is created by God himself and by the covenant-keeping God. And God's covenant creates a house of God which must live according to its commandments or suffer the consequences. The function of each testament, new and old, is a legal document which defines the covenant community, whether Israel or the church. But it defines the covenant, and by the way, the church receives the prophetic promises to Israel. In, I can't get into all this because I've We'll go on for hours, but um, suffice it to say that the main promise that Moses gave was that you'll be a kingdom of priests in Exodus chapter 19, and in Revelation chapter 1, 6, and 5, 10, that scripture is taken and specifically applied to the church. Israel failed in her mission, so now God gives the promise to the church, which the church obviously is composed of Jews as well as Gentiles, so God doesn't have any special nation on earth, not even Israel. Not even, God bless you all, but not even the United States of America. <laughs> Canada, maybe, but you don't think about that. So the function of each testament or covenant or treaty is that of a legal document which defines the covenant community as a system of government. This is who we are, believe it or not, it's the church. A system of government by which the lordship of God through Jesus Christ is made real on the earth. So every time you get discouraged about the church or feel like quitting, the church is the system of government that God has ordained to establish the kingdom of God on this earth. I quoted Ab Abraham Kuyper to the guys this afternoon. Abraham Kuyper, uh, look him up if you sh in, and read some of his stuff. Uh, but Abraham Kuyper made this statement. There is not one square inch, there is not one square inch of ground on this planet over which Christ does not cry, mine. And he lived it out too. So we're a kingdom people who are seeking to extend the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth because Jesus is going to fulfill the original commission to Adam, be fruitful and multiply, failed. Israel was told to be light to nations, failed. Jesus took up the commission of 
uh, that was given to Adam to be fruitful and multiply, and he turned it into the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. And that's why the Bible says Jesus will not return until the gospel of the kingdom has come to every ethnos, every people group, Matthew 24 and 14. So Jesus is going to extend the boundaries of the Garden of Eden to the ends of the earth. That's the kingdom. And uh, that's why the last two chapters of the Bible and the first two chapters of the Bible are about the same thing. They're bookends of the whole Bible and they make, give meaning to everything in between. And it's why your eschatology will affect everything else you believe and it's why you need to all buy my book. <laughs> Called Mystery Explained, available on Amazon. Thank you, Lord. Okay. Even as God, through his creative word in Genesis, fashioned the heavens of the earth, through his scriptural word, God fashions the structure and nature of his covenant community. Now, this is opposed to the Roman Catholic conception in which the church creates the Bible and may therefore subject it to its own, to its own changing interpretation. But we maintain that God, through his word, stands as Lord over the church and calls the church into line with his kingdom purposes and his covenant word. It is not that the scripture creates the church, it's that God through the scripture orders the church and brings the church into submission to his will. So without the scripture, there's no way of knowing what the nature or will of God is other than through the very limited, twisted lens of re revelation through natural creation. And that brings no answer to our fallen condition and no hope. So the Bible's... Here, here we come to what I alluded to a couple minutes ago, the Bible's last words of warning. Um, and I'll emphasize this. As the Bible draws to a close, it presents us in Revelation 22 with a solemn warning. Now, these verses stand in the same relation to the rest of Revelation and by extension the entire Old Testament as do almost identical passages in Deuteronomy. Remember I said there are curses attached at the end of the document to anyone that fiddles with it, that tries to mess around with it. So Deuteronomy 4 and also chapter 12 say, listen to the statutes. You shall not add to the word nor take away from it. And in Deuteronomy 29, and it shall be that when he hears the words, that's the words of the law, every curse which is written in this book will rest on him. This is when he hears the words and disobeys. Every curse which is written in this book will rest on him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. That's a very stern warning that coming at the end of the law of Moses. But similarly, Revelation 22. You know, those who think, oh, well, Jesus is all lovey-dovey and all the rest of it and we can't make any judgments about anything or anyone or anything else. The Apostle John says this, I testify to everyone who hears the word, if anyone, the words, if anyone adds to them, this is right out of Deuteronomy, God will add to him the plagues that have been written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, that's right out of De Deuteronomy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city. It's a very severe warning. Both Deuteronomy and Revelation, interestingly, deal with idolatry. Both Deuteronomy and Revelation promise those who are obedient that they will enter into God's new land. Both Deuteronomy and Revelation use plagues to describe the punishment for unfaithfulness, to add to or take away from the words of God's treaty document according to both according to Deuteronomy, means to accept the idea that idolatry is compatible with worship of the one true God. So if you mess around with the words of Scripture, Deuteronomy says you've accepted the idea that you can worship God and idols at the same time. So my point here is that those who undermine the authority of the Bible today do so in order to make way for worship of something other than God. Now, it doesn't have to be a literal idol. 
It could be today's politically correct beliefs. Whatever. It could be something else in your life that expresses idolatry. Idolatry is anything where your heart is drawn to something other than God. So the last words of the Bible are a very severe warning to those who suggest that the teachings of Scripture are culturally irrelevant. Maybe they were relevant 2,000 years ago, but they're not relevant now. We can cut our scissors out, cut, take our scissors and cut the parts out we don't agree with. But these words are a severe warning to people of that mentality. Uh, and by the way, do, Revelation 22 is not addressed to the world. Not at all. It's addressed to the church. Revelation is a pastoral letter, believe it or not, written to seven churches. Seven is the number of God and of completion. The seven churches of the province of Asia represent the whole church of God through every age and therefore us. So it's addressed to us. It's a warning, according to Revelation, to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy. That's us. If we seek to build churches today on the solid foundation of God's unchanging word, those churches will remain standing on the rock of that foundation long after the changing tides of human culture have come and gone. And against those churches, the gates of hell will not stand. Now, I have one little further piece. I'm flipping down to the end here. And I just want to make a brief comment on, on this idea. If Jesus himself viewed the scriptures as being unbreakable, why is it that there are so many theologians around, apparently, that consider the scriptures so unreliable? And the fault does not lie with the scriptures. The fault actually lies with the faulty philosophical presuppositions that theologians hold. Uh, and primarily their commitment to what I call philosophical materialism. The liberal theology, you want to call it woke theology if you want, <clears throat> liberal theology is built on a worldview that automatically excludes the miraculous. And in the bigger course, I outline the history of how this all developed. Because that's a society that we've inherited, a rationalistic society that excludes the miraculous. Why does it exclude the miraculous? Because the miraculous doesn't exist? No, because philosophically, the philosophical worldview posits or it, it lays down as a self-evident truth, which is assumed, not proven, that the miraculous doesn't exist. And therefore, anybody that says it does is automatically cancelled, so to speak, excluded. And so the Bible is excluded. And there's not a question of, you know, uh, how about looking at the evidence? No, no matter how strongly the evidence stacks up in favor of the Bible, we can't believe it because we hold a philosophical worldview which is contradictory to it. So, well, I say that just to make the point that why shouldn't we challenge the philosophical worldview? Because when you look at the philosophical worldview of materialism, it doesn't make sense. And there's lots of people who have demonstrated this far better than I, I ever could. But <clears throat> materialism is the idea that ultimately only what I can touch, taste, see, feel, and smell, and so on exists. Right? Uh, excluding taste and smell if you've got COVID. As Elaine <laughs> and I discovered a couple of months ago. Uh, but, uh, but it suggests, therefore, that all of reality as we know it was a giant cosmic accident. Uh, it just came to pass. And uh, all we are is a bunch of random, we're a random collection of atoms arranged in a certain way. So the idea that there could be original, that there could be personality or thought of any sort is contradictory to what materialism believes because materialism doesn't give grounds for the idea of rational thought. Um, 
but it introduces it by the back door. The back door is that most people have an underlying belief in God in our culture. And where we get the idea of rationality actually comes from Genesis, where it says that a rational, supernatural creator, God, created us in his own image and gave us the ability to think. Now, philosophical materialists, of which there are many around, um, they want to have their cake and eat it too. They deny God, but they want to, uh, and, and they say everything's can be reduced to the material. But then miraculously, so to speak, everybody can understand. And nobody can understand how the entire universe works better than they can. And that's the definition of a fool. Um, but that is the foundation of liberal theology. So, uh, the... More over the years, the, uh, I can say as a trained New Testament scholar, that over the last hundred years, the Bible has been verified and verified and verified over and over and over again. It'll never be verified completely before the Lord returns, but it, all the evidence has piled up in favor on the one side. And so, but it doesn't matter how much evidence there is if your worldview excludes the supernatural you won't listen to the evidence. But we're not an irrational people because we believe the Bible. We have a firm and rational and solid foundation for our faith. As one famous British historian said, there is more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is for the existence of Julius Caesar. And if you know anything about ancient documents, um, you'll understand why he said that. Because... The manuscript evidence that we have for Caesar, for instance, uh, his writings uh, uh, and people who wrote about him is we might have one or two manuscripts from about a thousand years after Caesar lived. Same with Plato and Aristotle and all the Greek historians and all, all the Latin writers. All of a sudden, I, I, had a, I have a minor in classics, so I'm not just shooting up my mouth not knowing anything about it. But if you look at the New Testament documents, we have thousands of them. Some from as early as the first century. Thousands of them. You can go, as I did, to the British Library in London. Sounds like I'm promoting British tourism today. But <laughs> you can go to the British Library in London and stand there and be confronted with Codex Sinaiticus, which is 1,700 and something years old. It's an a copy of the entire Bible. It's the first entire Bible that we have. But there are th literally thousands of portions of Scripture that we have. And so nobody runs around saying, well, I don't believe that Aristotle even lived. I don't believe that Plato lived. I don't believe that Caesar lived. I don't believe that Thucydides lived. I don't believe... This is all just, you know... Those ruins in Athens that I've seen that are magnificent, they must have just come there by chance because Pericles didn't live either. So, uh, and, you know, that statue we saw outside the Greek Bible College, you walk out there and you can see this statue of a man like this. And the Greek Bible College, this is an interesting, inconsequential point, but you're a runner, so you might be interested in it. It is the exact, stands at the exact midpoint uh, between... Uh, the, the Acropolis of Athens and the site of the Battle of Marathon. And so it's 13 miles, 13.1 miles, right there where that runner stands. But nobody says, oh, that's all myth. We've, you know, we've only got one or two writers in the manuscripts we've got are a thousand years. And yet the New Testament, we have thousands, thousands of documents. So the reason is, philosophical. It's not historical or logical. All right. Uh, I have a lot to say about that in the wider course. I can't talk about it tonight. Um, and let me just see, just a minute, let me just see if I had a conclusion. Uh, there's always a conclusion. Some, some of us have more than one. <laughs> it's like, what does it mean when the preacher looked at his watch? Not much. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I th this is just the last little bit. Is this okay? Are you okay? Are you, okay? you know, I don't think Jake's too happy with me. I'm in trouble now. Is that right? <laughs>
Uh, let me just say this. As we look around the world uh, in terms of Christianity, uh, we're being attacked from the outside. I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, the severe persecution that the governor of California places on people by making them wear a mask or something, even though Matt Shackelford's a little bit in a grump over that kind of thing. That is not persecution. I'm sorry. It isn't. So, stop it. You know, don't think that. I don't care whether you agree with it or not. It's not persecution. But there are Christians around this world who are being persecuted and put to death today. With, you know, there's lots of Christians in Ukraine today. Lots of born-again Christians. And they're being persecuted by a satanically inspired dictator. So that's persecution. Um, but the battle that we have to face in the West is more subtle, but it's still real. It's a battle from within. We're pressured to conform, to become acceptable culturally and socially, right? And so one of the greatest battles is the pressure to compromise the Word of God in those places where the Word of God offends the pagan culture in which we live. And so we start to water down parts of the Bible. We begin with one or two minor points, but once you have abandoned commitment to the absolute authority of Scripture, it is impossible to stop the catastrophe that you've set in motion. It's impossible. Now let me just say this. It's heresy to say that parts of the Scripture are culturally relevant and not authoritative today. That's heresy. That's demonic teaching. The only parts of the Bible which are no longer to be observed are those parts which the Bible itself teaches are not to be observed, such as the daily offering of bulls and etc. Just because the teaching of Scripture is offensive to modern culture does not give modern culture the right to declare those teachings out of date. The entire doctrine of the atonement, the sacrificial death of the Christ, Christ on the cross, is based on what are, humanly speaking, completely outdated Jewish cultural concepts of animal sacrifice. As Christians, we understand that such sacrifices are not to be offered any longer, not because they're outdated or culturally unacceptable, but because God himself has substituted another better sacrifice, the sacrifice of his own son. But the sacrifice of Christ on the cross makes no sense outside of the Old Testament understanding of the power of sacrifice to satisfy the anger of a holy God. And that concept is completely foreign to our modern culture. And many, even church leaders, are offended at the idea that God could be angry at sin or have visited his anger on that son. Yet that reality is at the very heart of our salvation. If God is not angry against sin, he's no longer the holy and righteous God that he is. And the question arises, why would Christ have gone to the cross at all? So when we begin to pick and choose which parts of the Bible are acceptable, it won't be long before you've thrown everything out and your faith completely. We live in a culture which is increasingly dominated by the denial of truth. But the same people who yell loudest at the biblical claims to truth have themselves instituted their own claims to truth, all the while claiming to believe none of us can know truth. Try taking a stand against critical theory on a university campus and you'll soon find out that the people who apparently deny truth in reality only deny what contradicts their truth. And that is truth. Oh, well, thank you. Glad you agree with me on something. Okay. The enemy... I'm reading the last few lines, folks. I really am. Uh, the enemy is infiltrating the church with the suggestion that we have to compromise with what's going on in the world or the world will not listen to us. Baloney. Baloney. The world wants something different than it's got. The truth is the only way we're going to reach this world is by the bold and uncompromised preaching of the truth. Jesus did not say, I am one of many ways to God. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we come to Jesus only through his word, the written, binding, unbreakable record of his legal covenant with humanity. 
Appeasing Satan has never been a winning strategy for the church. Resisting him is. So the task for us is twofold. Number one, study God's word, teach it and preach it in season and out of season, whether or not it's popular. We are to be a prophetic people. A prophetic people is not somebody that prances around on the platform and gives out a little thus saith the Lord and then sits down and thinks they're all that in a bucket of chicken. That's not a prophetic people. Prophetic people are people who understand and live in a culture of biblical truth. Christianity, at its best, is always countercultural. First, to study God's word and preach it in season, out of season, etc. The second part of our mandate is to study the culture we live in, to become aware of the areas in which its values oppose those of God's word, and to make sure none of them enter our lives or our church. If we don't do it, then one day sooner or later we'll be confronted by the one with eyes of fire and feet of burnished bronze and rightly judged for our sin, whether we participate directly or whether we tolerate it in the house of the Lord. So I pray that God will give us prophetic eyes to see clearly and act justly in these challenging days. Thank you.